you have your Bible with you, you can open or scroll or tap to Exodus 3, verse 13. This morning we're going to be looking at one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture, certainly of the Old Testament. Anytime God names Himself, we ought to sit up and take notice. And that is the central feature of this passage that we have before us today. We're going to read Exodus 3, 13 through 22. As you read, let me just try to give you an idea as to, as to what it is uh, that we will see or that we'll be drawing out of this passage. Once again, if we were to take this passage and try to sum it up in one sentence and attempt to do that, this is not the only way that you could do it, but for our purposes today, we're going to sum this passage up this way. Because God will always be Himself, our rescue is certain. Because God will always be Himself, our rescue is certain. And this is going to shake itself out or work its way out in two primary ways. One, in this passage we see what God will be, and then second, what God will do. What God will be and what God will do, because He is always Himself, our rescue is certain. Start with me at Exodus 3, verse 13. We are still at Sinai in the event where God has revealed Himself, allowed Himself, made Himself seen in the flame located in the bush. He is speaking with Moses, and Moses raises a question in 3.13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed, or they will listen to what you say, and you, with the elders of Israel, will come to the king of Egypt and will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles which I will do in the midst of it, and after that he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it will be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman will ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are not able to fully comprehend the depths of your being, even when you come to make yourself known to us by word, by your presence, 
in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, in the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, even when you do that, we still find that as finite creatures, we are never able to fully grasp who you are. Nevertheless, Lord, we ask that by your grace and mercy, you would not allow our limitations to dissuade us from thinking long and hard about what you have revealed. Help us, Father, even to the point that we run to the end of our limits. Help us to think even more about how big and great and wondrous you are so that we would be able to worship with reverence and awe. We thank you for the scriptures that you have given us and ask that you would give us insight and understanding and a love for what we find here. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So because God is always himself, our rescue is secure. Let me say a couple things up front. Probably the bulk of the, of the time that we spend in this passage is going to be in verses 13 through 15 on the revelation of the name. What is his name? And God gives an answer to that. There's a lot that needs to be said there that's packed into uh, a few short verses and also the surrounding context. But just to, uh, to try to uh, do some level setting, so to speak, uh, so you know where I'm coming from. The uh, language can be a funny thing, right? Human language, not just Hebrew or Greek in the New Testament, but the English language, like we've got all these quirks and oddities and stuff like that, and, and sometimes we, we know the inflection or what's being said as we're face-to-face -face with the speaker or as we're interacting personally. That creates something of a challenge when we're reading from God's Word after the fact, because there are some things that we're just unable to pick up on, and so we're wrestling with the context to try to sharpen or refine the, the precise meaning of this passage. All that to say this, the, the, the name that God gives of himself, most frequently, probably all of you, if you have your Bible with you, when you read in 314, you read that statement that God said to Moses, I am who I am. You, you read it as a, as a present tense, which is perfectly fine and good, okay? I'm, I'm just going to add one wrinkle into this reading, which is to say that the verb that we have in Hebrew, God is giving his name in the form of a verb, all right? Already then, that makes things complicated and difficult. What is your name? A verb. Verbs aren't names. Well, for God it is, okay? But one of the difficulties or one of the added challenges of trying to figure out what God means by verbalizing his name is that even the tense is a little bit ambiguous in the sense that the form of the verb can be translated as a present or as a future. So you could just as easily read in 3.14, you could read it as, then Moses, uh, or then uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am, or you could also read it as, God said to Moses, I will be who I will be. In fact, one of the interesting things is that a couple verses earlier when God says to Moses, I will be with you, to, when you go to the Israelites, that I will be, exact same verb that shows up in 314. So I'm, I'm giving you fair notice and warning, for, especially for you type A personalities out there. Probably as we go through this message, I'm going to be bouncing back and forth from the present tense and the future tense. Deal with it. All right? I, I think that both present and future tense are at play here, which is what we'll start to see as we work our way through it. And because of that, there are times when I will refer to the Lord's name as I am, or there will be times when I refer to it as I will be. And then if that makes you dizzy, well, now you know how I feel. So, a couple things that need to be said up front particularly as it relates to the question. Moses says, you're sending me to the people. You're sending me to your people, to the sons of Israel. And when I appear before them with your message, they may say to me, 
as I reveal to them that the God of your fathers has sent me, they may say to me, this is 3.13, what is his name? If they ask that question, what do I answer them? Okay, first thing we need to do is to recognize what is the meaning or the significance of the question. The question is not, who is this God, but what is this God? Or, to, to put it in more regular vernacular, they're not asking for God to be identified, like give us a label or a name. They're asking for God to be described. Tell us what he is like. One of the ways that you, that you see this borne out is that if you were to skip ahead to Exodus chapter 5, when Moses shows up and presents himself to Pharaoh for the first time and says, the, the Lord, the I Am, has told us that we are to go and to worship him, let us go. Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord? He doesn't even know who this Hebrew God is. That's not what the people are asking. The people are not asking for him to be identified. They're asking for him to be described. Why would they ask a question like that? Here's why I think they ask a question like that. Moses is going to go and he's going to say, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has, has sent me to you. And he sent me to you to say that he's coming to rescue you out of your bondage and slavery, out of oppression, and to bring you into freedom and blessing and joy. To which the people are going to say, is that right? He could have done that a couple hundred years ago. Where's he been? What's he been doing this whole time? He cares about us? Really? Is, is that what he's like? He's a, he's a caring God? I'm not so sure. Yeah, we, we, know, we know what God was like back then. Right? We know that for the forefathers, for the patriarchs, that he acted and responded in certain ways. We're, we're, we're not the patriarchs, and we're not in that setting. We're not in that situation. They, they wandered around freely, albeit wandering. They wandered around freely in the land of Canaan. That's not where we are. We don't have any freedom here. We're enslaved you're going to have to tell me a little bit more about what this God is like to get us out of this. Or, we know that what the patriarchs, what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what they face, they, they face little skirmishes, skirmishes with tribes and clans within the land. Or, they face sort of the difficulties that come with interpersonal relationships in the family, an angry brother, a disgruntled wife or a spouse, right, that sort of thing. That's not what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with a little people group here and there. We're not dealing with a disgruntled family member. We're dealing with the Egyptian empire. You say that the God of our fathers has come to us after hundreds of years? You say that he's going to bring us out? You're going to have to tell us something more than that. What is this God like? What is there about this God of our fathers that we have not seen that would give us reason to believe that he is going to do what he says he's going to do? Do you, you get the feel? What is he like? What is his name? How do you describe him? Listen, this question, if we can just pause for a minute and, and say, right, we, we tend or we have a tendency oftentimes to sort of look down our noses at Old Testament Israel, right, because they're just so simple-minded. They're not as sophisticated as we are. They're certainly not as strong in faith as what we are. They ask all these irreverent, disrespectful questions. We would never do that. 
Oh, we do it all the time. Every time we find ourselves in a place or in a position or in a situation or a scenario that we did not expect, that, or more specifically, that we do not like, we are always confronted with this basic question. If God is like that, why am I like this? What is it about God that should give me any reason to hope that this misery, that this trouble, that this test and trial is going to be temporary? Right, this, is, this is a question that we all wrestle with. And if you haven't wrestled with it yet, you will as you continue to walk with the Lord. It's inevitable. So what is God like? And then you have to love the answer. Verse 14. They want to know what I'm like? Here's the answer to that question. I am like myself. Oh. Oh, oh well that settles it. What is his name? His name is, he is himself. That doesn't seem to do anything. That doesn't seem to answer the question at all. In fact, if you read commentators here or there, the very oddity of this response some people today some people take as an indication that God is either a somewhat offended not in a weak way right but they but they are they are talking his honor down and he's not willing to to entertain a response some questions just aren't even worth answering or God can't really tell them who he is he's too mysterious and so he gives them a non-answer I don't think that's what's happening here I don't think that God is shrugging the question off or that he's being intentionally evasive or vague. I think there is an answer here, although the answer cannot be completely comprehended. What is this God like? The answer, he is like himself. Why is that a good and a necessary answer for these people? Let me give you two reasons or two things from the context that shape further or refine the significance of God's answer. Number one, the answer that God gives has to be read in the broader context of chapter 3 and 4, which is all about God making His presence known to His people. That's how chapter 3 starts. In verse 2, God, the Lord, appeared. He made himself seen to Moses. He made himself seen in the, in the image or in the form of a flame. God has come to make himself known. He has come to make himself known to be present with his people. So that God says earlier in the passage that we had last week, I have come down to bring my people out of Egypt. So in light of the fact that in chapter 3, God has already made it abundantly clear that what He is doing now, after a long period of silence, right? In the first two chapters of, of Exodus, God is silent and He is hidden behind the scenes. He's still working Right? He's protecting Moses. He's blessing the Hebrew midwives. He's causing the people to be fruitful and to multiply. I mean, he's doing that. It's not that he isn't there, but he's, he's silent and unseen to the people. Whereas in chapter 3, all of a sudden now, God is bursting onto the scene and bursting onto the scene so that his people will know who he is when he comes to them to be present with them. So whatever it is that God is saying in this answer, I will be myself, it's not an evasion because God is coming to make himself known to his people 
in their daily lived experience. Does that make sense? The reason that he's speaking with Moses is so that he can be known and so that he can be a present reality. The second thing that shapes and refines the way that we understand God's answer, I will be myself, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, is the fact that multiple times in Exodus 3, God makes a point to say, when you go and tell them that I am has sent you, Moses, to them, Israel, tell them I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He attaches his name to his identity as the God of the patriarchs. Say, yeah, so? What is God like? Well, God is like the God of the patriarchs. What was God like to the patriarchs? Ah, here's what God was like to the patriarchs. God was like one who makes promises to the patriarchs. God was one who made promises to the patriarchs and who kept his promises. That's what God was like with the patriarchs. And if God is always himself, if that's what he was to the patriarchs, isn't that what he is and will be to his people now? He will be a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He will be himself. To the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God was all-powerful and sovereign over the forces of nature. He opened and he closed wombs. He struck tribes with sicknesses and illnesses when they threatened his people. He was omnipotent, all-powerful, and no one could stand in his way. That's what he was like for the patriarchs. Well, if God is always himself and always will be himself, if that's what he was for the patriarchs, isn't that what he is and will be for the people? God was a defender for the patriarchs. He rescued them. Out of all kinds of scenarios and dilemmas, some of which, some messes he rescued them from, that they created and made themselves. Others, he rescued them from situations which they had no part in creating, but which they could not escape. He was a rescuer and a defender for the patriarchs. And if God is always himself and always will be himself, won't he also be a defender and a rescuer for the people now? God was a judge of the wicked and those who would threaten to destroy his people and his promises. If God showed himself to be the God of the patriarchs, a God of justice and judgment and wrath for those who would oppose him, if God is always himself and always will be himself, isn't that what he will be for Israel now? He will be the avenger for his people What is God like? He's like himself. You don't need a better answer than that. You can't give a better answer than that. The answer is God. Right? You, do you get that? You see that? You want to know what God is like. God is like himself. All that he was to the patriarchs, he is to the nation, and he will be in the future. He will be who he will be. And what he will be is nothing less than everything that his people need. He will be an all-sufficient supply for his people every day and in every way. 
Do you know this God? Do you know this God as he is in himself? Listen, one of the challenges that comes with an answer like this, what is God like? Well, I'm like myself. Implicit in that answer is that the only way that you will come to know that God is always God is that you have to walk with him to find that out. Don't you? Skip to the New Testament a little bit. God says a lot of things about himself. He says things like that he is the God and Father of all comfort. How will you know that God is always a comforter? The only way that you will know that God is always a comforter is if you cling to him in times when you need comfort. You don't find out that God is a comforter before you need comfort. You find out that God is a comforter when you need comfort. But if you turn and if you leave God before you get there or before he reveals himself to you because you don't trust him, you don't find out that God is always God. God says that he is one who gives wisdom generously to anyone who asks for it, so long as you ask in faith. How will you know that an all-wise God generously gives wisdom to his people unless your eyes turn to him when you find yourself in a confusing situation. If you try to find your wisdom from the world or from self-help books or you turn away from the wisdom that God himself has revealed, you're not going to find God to be God. You will not know that God is always himself. Because the only way that you can find God to be himself in the present and in the future is if you trust him. The name itself is a call to faith. If you don't trust him, you will not know him to be himself. Listen, Psalm 22. You don't need to turn there. Listen, listen to what David says in verses 4 and 5. Reflecting on... God's dealings with his people in Israel's history. From his vantage point, David says this, Psalm 22, 4 and 5. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were delivered. In you, they trusted and they were not disappointed. How do you know that God will be himself? And how do you know that God being himself is sufficient for you in your scenario, in your place, in your test, in your trial? The only way that you will know that is if you first trust him to be himself. You say, that's easier said than done. That's right. You say, I have trust issues. So do I. No, 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 Merritt, you don't understand. I have trust issues because God declares himself to be a father to us. I didn't have a good father. I don't know what that means or what that looks like. Good news. God is not like your father. God is himself. I have trust issues because I was in what I thought was a long-lasting, permanent, 
committed relationship. And the person that I trusted most showed themselves to be untrustworthy, uncommitted, and just hung me out to dry, stabbed me in the back. Good news. God is not like your spouse. God is himself. I don't know what it means for authority to be used in a healthy, life-giving way. I have a tyrannical boss at work. I have egotistical, arrogant professors in class. Anyone who's anyone in a position of authority, they abuse it, they misuse it. I don't know that I can trust someone with that much power. Good news. God is not like any of them. He is like himself. And the question is always going to be, just like it is for Moses and for Israel here in Exodus 3, if God's rock-solid guarantee is that I will always be myself to you, and that in being myself, you will always have exactly what you need, will we trust that that is enough? Just in case you're still not convinced. If you want to know... What, God is, what it means for God to always be himself, no matter the situation, no matter the scenario, that he is always himself, that he will always be what he will be. If you still want to look and to see and to know what that is, the better news, the best news is, he has shown you that in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. What is God like? God is like Jesus. Who doesn't want to go to Jesus? Who doesn't want to trust someone like Jesus? Who doesn't believe that Jesus is able to give them everything that they could ever want and need. It's what Jesus is doing in John when he makes all these I am statements. He is explaining and showing and revealing even more about what it means for God to be God, for God to be himself. What does it mean for God to be himself? Jesus says... Because he is God in the flesh, Jesus takes on I am language and he says things like, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what God is. I am the door for the sheep. The sheep come to me, they pass in and through me, and they find access to the Father, and they find fields that they can feed on, that they can graze on. I sustain them. I give to these wandering, aimless sheep what they need. That's what God is. I am the vine. Everyone who's grafted into me has life. You live. If you're not grafted into me, the one who always is the source of life, you don't have life. I am the resurrection and the life. That's what God is. Christians, listen to me. Whatever you do, beware of the temptation to make God like someone or something else. He's not. 
and that's good news. I don't want a God like me. I don't want a God like you. You shouldn't want a God like you or like me. What you want, what your heart craves for, is what God is offering here in Exodus 3, Himself. And because He comes to make Himself known as a present reality in the midst of His people, He is inviting you to trust that He will always be what you need Him to be according to His promises and His goodwill. There is no greater security that God can offer you than to offer Himself. Further, He remains Himself even when we don't deserve to get Him as He is. Paul in 2 Timothy talks about the fact that, that Christ, God in the flesh, has come to save sinners. And he makes this potent statement in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? why? Why does He remain faithful when His people are unfaithful? What does Paul say? Because he cannot deny himself. He cannot help but be who he is. And that is your security in Christ. This is going to take some time to unpack. I don't, I don't mean this sermon. I'm talking about God's nature and identity about being himself. This is what the rest of Exodus is going to unfold. God showing by his presence with his people who he is on a regular, ongoing basis such that they can count and rely on him to always be who he said he will be. The rest of Exodus is going to be unpacking that. In the meantime, we get a little bit of a glimpse in the rest of this chapter as to what part of the significance of God's nature will mean for the Israelites. So what is God like for a people who are bound by the Egyptians, who are held in slavery, who cannot escape? Well, God is like himself. If you want to see what God is like, not just hear it, but you want God to show what He is like, He tells you what He's going to show about Himself in the latter half of chapter 3. He's going to bring His people out of Egypt and bring them into the Promised Land. Let me just, for the sake of time, let me just point out two things that once again show us not only that God is like Himself, but that God is unlike everyone else. Down in verse 19, 18 and 19. God tells Moses, you can go tell the people this, reveal my name to them, give them the guarantee. They, the Israelites, they will listen to you. And then you as a group, you will go to Pharaoh and make the pitch that we need to go into the wilderness to worship. So the people are going to respond positively to the message that you give them. Verse 19, though, says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. Israel may be on board, but Pharaoh's not going to be on board. What will God be for his people when they are confronted with the stubborn hard-heartedness of Pharaoh? He will be a sovereign ruler 
who exercises his power in such a way as to make it abundantly clear that no one stands in my way. No one stops me from doing what I want to do. No one stops me from rescuing my people so that I can fulfill my promises to them. Egypt, Pharaoh, they're not even speed bumps on the road. What kind of God is this God? He's not a regional God. He's not someone who plays good on his home turf in Canaan and then plays an away game when he comes to Egypt with all the other home gods. No, when this God comes, this God is like himself regardless of where he is, which means if he's all-powerful in Canaan, he's also all-powerful in Egypt. If his rule and his will holds sway over Hittites and Amorites and Amalekites and all, guess what? It holds sway over the Egyptians as well. God is going to show himself to be unstoppable because that's who he is every day. He's going to strike the enemy. He's going to judge them. On the flip side, though, because he is going to deal with Israel's enemy, what he will also reveal about himself is that while he deals out retribution to the enemy, he gives rich rewards to his people. What does God say is going to happen at the end of chapter 3? After he says in verse 20 that I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all of my miracles. He says in verse 21, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it will be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Just pause right there for a second. This is a group of slaves that God is saying, when you go out, you are going to go flush with cash and with personal possessions and property. How is that going to happen? Verse 22, every woman will ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. You know what kind of language plunder language is? That's conquering language. You plunder someone when you defeat them in battle. Israel's not going to defeat anyone in battle. Israel's not going to defeat the Egyptians. Israel is not going to hold sway over Pharaoh. Who is? God is going to hold sway. God is going to fight. God is going to be victorious. And look at what he does. He fights. He wins. He delivers for his people. And then he showers them with the spoils of war as if they did it all themselves. That's also what God is like. He is infinitely generous and gracious to His people. He gives to us what we do not earn. In fact, He keeps away from us what we earn. But at the end of the day, all of this For it to be of benefit to the people, all of it is going to have to start with simple trust. If you do not believe that what I am saying about myself is true, you will not come to me. And if you do not come to me to walk with me, to follow me, if you don't come to me, you will never know what I am truly like. This is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. You will never know who God is unless you turn to Him in simple, childlike faith and trust. We want to say, if you cause me to see, I'll believe. God says it doesn't work that way. If you believe, you'll see. 
And what you'll see is what God has been showing his people for generation after generation after generation, for thousands upon thousands of years, that he is unchanging. That he is so trustworthy and reliable that you can bet your life on him and the promises that he has made to you. And the guarantee of that is all of the fullness and all of the faithfulness that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who never changes in his disposition and his attitude to us, his weak people, and who makes his presence known by pouring out his spirit in our midst, in our hearts, so that daily, as we continue to go with him, trusting that he is who he says he is, his spirit makes it known to us. He shows us that all that he has said about himself is true. Because God will always be himself, our rescue is secure. We know that the work that he has started, he will finish. We know that the salvation that we have begun to experience will be consummated in full in his perfect timing. Let's pray. To whom would we liken you, God? There is no one. Anything that we would compare to you, you brought into existence. You exceed and surpass our wildest imaginations and expectations, but for the good. You have offered yourself to us as our greatest reward. Forgive us, Father, we ask for doubting that you will be anything other than who you will be. Forgive us, Father, for turning to try to find security and deliverance and protection in lesser things and in lesser people. Forgive us for turning a blind eye or at least a jaundiced eye to our Savior who suffered and died to show and to prove definitively your faithfulness to your people, your commitment to have victory over sin and to grant that victory to your people. Forgive us, Father, for turning a deaf ear to the call of your Spirit as you beckon us to yourself to walk with you, whether it's on the mountaintop or in the valleys of life's lowest experiences. Oh, but Father, how we praise you that even when we show ourselves to be unfaithful, that because we belong to you, because we are your people, that you will always remain yourself. Cause our hearts to sing for joy with that truth and that reality. Give us a rock-solid assurance and steadfastness in all the twists and turns of this life. May we be steadfastly devoted to you for your glory, for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, and for a display of your Spirit that works powerfully in our midst. Amen. We respond to that message in worship and song. Almighty fortress is our God, all bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe,
Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.